I would say you're coming into an incredible institution. Members have built this throughout now nearly 100 years. But I want you to remember when you sit in your very nice office and worry about who's in getting to go to what meeting, there is some janitor tonight who's going to stick his hand in a toilet and clean that toilet. And at the end of the week, he's going to get a paycheck. And from that paycheck is a very small amount of money he's going to give to us so that we can change his life. And when you think it's about changing your life, we've lost our moral compass and it's time for you to go. So if you can't accept that that's why we're here, you shouldn't be here and leave now. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was really happy to get the chance to talk to Andy Stern, the former president of the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. I don't think Andy needs a lot of introduction. He's been a notable labor leader and author, an important architect of healthcare reform, and is currently a fellow at the Economic Security Project, among other things, where he advocates for guaranteed cash income for all Americans. We had a good conversation about his career, our economy, and our politics. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Andy Stern. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Andy, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Andy Stern. I grew up in New Jersey, went on to become a member and then a leader of the Service Employees International Union, eventually its president from 1996 to 2010. And since then, I've worked on a number of issues, particularly universal basic income and trying to get gig workers the right to collectively bargain. I recently read your recent book and caught up with you that way. I don't know you though, except by reputation. So I wondered if I could get you to talk a little bit about your early years and how you were formed politically and, and otherwise. Where are you from? I'm originally from West Orange, New Jersey, right outside of Newark, New Jersey, where I was born. My father was a lawyer. My mother eventually worked in healthcare in the kind of planning administrative role. We sort of had a, a traditional Jewish progressive family, although I don't remember politics being discussed much in my house, and certainly unions were never discussed one way or another, just not part of my ethos. I always used to say that my middle name, which is Lewis, that I was actually named after John L. Lewis because it would have given me at least some standing amongst my brothers 
mostly who ran other unions, but I was named after my grandfather, Lewis, who was an immigrant butcher in Newark, New Jersey. And I finished high school in 1968, sort of at the height of the anti-war counterculture movement, uh, an odd reality for at those times. I got accepted to the Wharton School because it was easier to get into uh, than the School of Liberal Arts, which I transferred into about six months later. I spent a lot of time doing everything but going to school. I started a food co-op, a community center, was involved in kind of protesting the war, uh, a People's Park episode. Eventually, the school was very happy for me to leave an accelerated basis with a degree as an independent major that we made up uh, so that I could fulfill my parents' dreams of getting a college education. They could fulfill their dreams of getting rid of me. Anytime you're an activist like that as a young person, that kind of gets into your blood. It becomes a habit, becomes something that you do. What initiated you into that? Well, I, I would say I leaned more towards the counterculture side than the political side. And in fact, you know, when certain events happened, like they took over the administration office at the University for Anti-War, I was more the one who snuck in and opened the door, used the food co-op to deliver the food, but I didn't find kind of the endless all-night debates about the future of capitalism and, you know, SDS versus the Socialist Worker Party particularly. So I was, I would say, a more practical person. The People's Park was more of a belief that I think I held more firmly of sort of allowing communities to have a say and people to have a say in their own lives rather than in the case of the University of Pennsylvania, you know, a big educational industrial complex buying up the land and removing people, you know, from community. So the People Park was more of a piece of land that could have been a park and eventually became a park, you know, versus building another parking lot on the outskirts of campus. So I was sort of always drawn to feeling like I wanted to be part of a community. I wanted the community to be able to exercise power that each of us didn't really have. But I knew nothing about unions other than they had beat up anti-war protesters on Wall Street, that, you know, Richard Nixon had picked a union leader to be his labor secretary, and that a bunch of my father's friends who were small business people used to, they claim, get shaken down by the Teamsters union business agents during the time of Tony Pro and other unreputable people in New Jersey. So I really had no very positive sense of unions and had no real interest in in pursuing that. One of your early jobs, the one I'm aware of, was with a union, right? Well, my earliest job, I went after selling alternative newspapers in Boston, the real paper in the Phoenix on street corners for a couple months. And then I was a census taker and a substitute school teacher I got a job that my mother was at least very happy about, you know, from civil service that I became a a welfare worker, a public welfare worker. And, you know, I went there not particularly because of the job, but there was a welfare rights movement at the time uh, that was very much, you know, joined together with academics and with uh, Catholic community organizers. And I went to sort of thinking I could be on the inside in the welfare department, providing support to the outside, you know, groups that were trying to make 
change, which was probably pretty naive, but you know, something at that time at 21 seemed to make a lot of sense. And there is when I went to my first union meeting in my life, you know, and that began eventually going to work for the union about a year and a half later, um, and then a series of different roles inside the union. Not too many people in the country have that path all the way up from the bottom to the presidency of a union. What are the skills that it takes to navigate that politically? To like, Why were you a person who made it all the way? What was it about you? I decided that, you know, first, that the way to get to the top was to do a good job for members. You know, there are lots of ways you can do good jobs for leaders, but not necessarily for members. And I actually got fired twice from my job. Once when I ran to be the president of my local union, I was on staff. People uh, trumped up some charges about stealing money and that me helping someone do something that was improper, which was completely bogus, but was an attempt to sort of frustrate my way to the top. And the second one I ran for the president of SEIU, I was fired from my job by the incumbent president who didn't want me around to challenge him. So I think it takes a certain amount of just sheer inner strength that, you know, you're going to go for something that at times people don't think you're ready for or the right person for, or you haven't waited your time or, you know, served appropriately. And, you know, having a a tremendous commitment that you believe that getting elected means you could do something more for the people that you've been spending your life helping than other people who were seeking the job. I always say to people, when you see people get to the top of most unions, you know, you should never underestimate at least their skill in getting elected because it's it's kind of a brutal, you know, Soviet Chinese style unseen kind of Politburo election. But, you know, there are def- it's definitely rough and tumble often. I don't think everybody's familiar with the SEIU. Tell me a little bit about what that union is, how it's different from the other unions out there. Who does it serve? Yeah, so, so the union was created by janitors in Chicago, uh, flat janitors, they were called then. They were apartment house janitors who you know, were not seen by many people in the traditional skilled labor movement of the early 1900s as real workers. You know, they were immigrants, mostly Irish, Italian, and Polish. They tried to get recognition in, in both the, the local AFL and the national AFL, and they were not, not allowed to join because they didn't seem appropriate. Eventually, they found like seven other unions around the country and formed a national union. And again, were rejected the first time by the AFL. It actually took them 15 years to get into the AFL-CIO as a janitor's union. But it, it always had the hallmark of representing workers that no one else really wanted to represent. And that went on from janitors in apartment buildings to janitors in office buildings. You know, it was a craft union. It went on to janitors in school districts and janitors in warehouses. So it, it you know, really was sort of broad, branching out as a janitors union. Uh, you know, eventually it called itself the Building Service Employees International Union for most of its uh, time in the 20th century. And eventually those immigrant workers had family members or friends who were aides in a nursing home, you know, which has always been a place where particularly Caribbean and, you know, 
other ethnic workers came before, you know, Puerto Rican workers came. And then they had friends, you know, who were in hospitals and friends that were in home care. And so it kind of spread out to be workers that no one else wanted to represent, usually immigrants. At the time, all immigrants weren't people of color because there was a big influx of ethnic immigrants. That's how the union was built. And then it went on to organize office workers, which no one really, you know, wanted to organize because women weren't real workers at the time. But it's kept on, went on to security guards. It went on um, uh, to deal food service workers, lots of low wage service workers. And then at some point it became attractive to state workers, which was kind of an odd marriage, but, you know, California had a lot of public sector workers where the union was very big. And eventually it it sort of grew in that direction as well. It's really feels like it's had a different trajectory than a lot of the other unions that were in decline over this period of time and that it was growing at a later point, probably, I don't know how much of that was just the nature of where people were working changing and how much that was a difference in organizing or a difference in who was attacking it. But how do you quickly understand that, that difference? I mean, I'd say there were, there were three factors. One was we happened to be lucky. We were industries that were growing, you know, while steel and auto and others were being beset by foreign competition, healthcare and, you know, and building office work and administration service work was growing. So we happen to be in a sector, which, as we know now, doesn't mean anything because there's still lots of sectors growing and lots of unions shrinking. You know, two was the union, particularly from John Sweeney's kind of second term in office, 1984, made a conscious decision to grow. And I think people don't understand it. You know, organizing a, a fight with employers, we see it with Amazon now, but these are factors that go on every time that employers resist, that people put their lives or at least their jobs at risk. And, you know, it is a struggle that takes strategy and courage and resources. So you have to make a decision and then you have to allocate the money to do it. You know, when John Sweeney took over SEIU and I became the organizing director in 1984, 5% of the union's resources at a national level were spent on growth, probably less than 1% of the local unions were spent on growth, it would somewhat be, you know, like Avon not having salespeople, you know, and just thinking people were going to buy its products because someone told them they were good. When you're selling a product, there's just competition, but no opposition. In union organizing, there's not only competition, there's huge opposition called employers, you know, who have gotten more and more aggressive over the years. So, you know, it's a combination of will sector, resources, and strategy. Organizing director, such an important role you mentioned. What makes a good organizing director at a union? Well, I would say, you know, I was pretty surprised that John Sweeney wanted me to be his organizing director. I think he probably ran out of people in his mind. I was a local union president at the time of kind of nursing home and public sector workers in Pennsylvania when he asked me to come not only be the organizing director initially, but take over kind of the bargaining and the other field services they used to call them. And my only private sector organizing experience was I attempted to organize a nursing home outside of Harrisburg 
Pennsylvania. I had signed up about 70% of the workers on authorization cards, which are the cards you need to give to the National Labor Relations Board to conduct an election so you have enough support. And I remember out of 100 people, you know, we probably put in 60 or 70 cards and we lost the election 94 to 6, which just showed me the power of the employer. By the time it was done, the, the, the patients in the nursing home were wearing vote no buttons. But, you know, it, they just, you know, completely convinced people of the futility of the effort. They fired a couple of people. They gave people raises. And it, it was probably, you know, a pretty stark reminder from someone who thought he was pretty much of a hot shot and didn't understand what all this problem was with organizing was to appreciate why battle-scarred veterans had either given up or, you know, were much more cautious. So I didn't have a lot of experience, but the one thing I did have was an incredible belief that the labor movement couldn't survive unless it grew stronger. And it was growing smaller and smaller. And you could see the changes in the economy by the mid-80s that were beginning to hit the industrial heart of the union movement. And so I felt like it was kind of, I hate to say this, it was kind of boring, you know, negotiating contracts or doing arbitration cases. There wasn't a lot of changing lots of people's lives in a dramatic way. Yet, you know, if you save someone's job, it was really fulfilling. If you got a nice contract, it was fulfilling. But you watch this, you know, this country and the economy and what was happening to workers and you thought, this is going to be my life, you know, one at a time, you know, solving problems. And so, you know, organizing just seemed like this is something the labor movement once did with John L. Lewis and the CIO in the 20s and 30s. It had grown quite dormant, particularly after the, they fired the communists in the 1950s and the purge of the McCarthy years out of the unions, many of whom were the best organizers in the labor movement. So, you know, organizing had become a lost art and not a lot of interest uh, in it. And so it just was a, it was an incredible challenge because it was sort of, I was 33 years old. You know, how do you have in the next 50 years a labor movement that can exist if it can't grow? And so I would just say, you know, perseverance and a doggedness, you know, and then a willingness to listen and learn. What worked best to add people to the, well, what union. we eventually learned over time, and I would I always say to people, I can give you lots of lessons on organizing and running a union based on every mistake that I've made, because I think I've made every mistake humanly possible before I learned better ways to do things. But the basic fact of life is workers tend to want a union and employer opposition, you know, is the number one factor. You know, that stands in the way. I always say, if you go out to a place, take Iowa, and you find first level of management and state workers, or you find an engineer or an accountant who's a state worker, they're going to be in a union, right? If you go to the same high school and find all their friends who are accountants or first level of management or an engineer, none of them will be in unions. Now, you can say the people that went to the work for the state had you know, self-selected different characteristics. But the truth is they were given a free choice in most states about having a union. And you knew, you know, it was a career ender, you know, and certainly a promotion ender, you know, to try to be in a union in the private sector. And so what we realized was that the law was inadequate. 
you know, the Democratic Party wasn't going to save you. And you had to run thoughtful campaigns. We used to call them corporate campaigns. So the lawyers told us that was not the right words. We used to run accountability campaigns for corporate employers, you know, about how they should let their workers make a free choice. And the whole Justice for Janitors campaign, for instance, we never had an election, you know, in the entire 27 years I was involved because we knew we're never going to win an election, you know, but if the employer was neutral and if they accepted cards, which is legal under the law if a majority of the people signed cards, you know, we could get a union. So a lot of our work was trying to get the employers to create the right condition so workers could make a free choice. Your election to president of the union was fairly contested, right? How did you win that office? First of all, I didn't think I wanted to run. And, you know, what was happening was John Sweeney and a group of other union presidents were very unhappy with the incumbent president of the AFL-CIO, Lane Kirkland. You know, he had been there a long time, stayed too long, like money labor leaders have a tendency uh, to do. And, you know, in a un- really unusual situation, a group of mainstream labor leaders like John Sweeney, Jerry McEntee from AFSCME, you know, some leaders from the machinists and the UAW decided they were going to go make a change, which began a whole process inside SEIU because the person they wanted to make the change was John Sweeney. But he was their reluctant candidate. Uh, and not very eager to take on the job, but it just started all this foment inside the union. And when he was elected, then his secretary treasurer, who was a very old style union leader, not anywhere near as progressive as John Sweeney, became the president. The election at the convention was like six months away at that time. And so there was this question, are we all, meaning people who are much more progressive in the union, much more pro-organizing, were much more pro a series of changes that John Sweeney had begun to promote, you know, going to take our shot at this, or we were just going to be good soldiers and wait our turn and work from the inside to try to get things done. And eventually, you know, a group of friends, but also significant local union leaders kept saying to me, you know, you're the person who should do this. You're the best known. You have a record of accomplishment. People know you're serious about making change, you know, and if you, we're going to win, it has to be on, you know, about change, not about I'm a better negotiator, or I can run the finances and make a better budget, or I won't raise the dues or all the conservative things. That, so they eventually can, you know, convince me to run. As soon as it was clear I was going to run, I got fired from my job in like February. The election was in April of that year. Uh, John Sweeney endorsed the other candidate, his his secretary treasurer, who had risen to the presidency after he. Did that surprise you that he did? It disappointed me. That's for sure. Uh, you know, John Sweeney is. Uh, you know, and it, it, this was kind of his his deficit at the AFL CIO. You know, is he he liked to make incremental change and allow different forces to work where he was in the middle, the left and the right to try to kind of reminds me of Joe Biden right now, you know, everybody trying to convince the king to be on their side, right? And John liked to set things up that way. So he thought if I became a vice president and someone else, a woman became a secretary treasurer and he had picked out 
the new president's chief of staff, who he thought, you know, would be a competent, that we could all make change in a in a you know, incremental fashion. And it turned out he was just wrong. You know, they eventually fired me, fired the chief of staff. You know, he picked another secretary treasurer to run against than the woman that John had promoted. So it's it, but it surprised me that even at the end, you know, he would stick with tradition and pick the incumbent, even though he had just won as a challenger. So how were you able to win? I got more votes. I raised some money, you know, set up a campaign office. I raised money from members. I went around the country, you know, it was a pretty learning experience. A lot of people were with me right from the beginning, particularly the janitors and the public workers, because they had, you know, um, been particularly the ones where the organizing had occurred because they had seen the power of the union, the traditional locals that were led by the old timers, mostly you know, male, pale and stale, I used to say, uh, you know, they were not for me at all and actually worked, you know, incredibly aggressively to not only make sure I got fired, but to try to intimidate and threaten and audit and anything they could do to another local union who they thought might support me. So it was just, you know, it was, it was a campaign in the end. It was about two weeks ahead of the election, three weeks ahead of the election. It was clear I was going to win. You know, everybody then wants to be saved, you know, who had been your opponent. They really weren't, they were really sort of with you, but it was the other people that, you know, yeah. Suddenly, everybody wants to be on your good side. Exactly right. Yeah. So what was your feeling when you kind of took charge? Were you, did you feel like you had a lot to learn about the job? Did you feel really confident that you could make change? What was going on in your head as you assumed that position? First of all, I still, can, I still have a picture on the stage of the convention in 1996 and we had agreed to let the incumbent president run the convention for the first day because he had never done anything like that. You know, we, we're not trying to create a war in the union, even though we had won. We were going to try to create change in the union, you know, but not a personal crusade. And so, but I still remember they had this old style thing where they introduced the dais. And at that time, I was a vice president because President Sweetie had made me a vice president as part of this idea of, of peace. So when they got to me, they introduced me. You know, everybody like waves. And so I wave. And people had organized this. The entire place, except for my opponents, gets up and goes crazy, you know, and signs and confetti. And, and I was like, this is real. <laughs> this is, I'm going to be the president. You know, up to then, it was like a campaign. I, you know, I had I had, remember coming home after I'd been fired, and my my son asked me who was about uh, let's see, he was about uh, eight at the time. Were we going to be able to stay in the house, Daddy? You know, and my daughter was upset, and my wife, to her credit, was 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 good about all this. But uh, you know, it just somehow was just like a whole thing, and then all of a sudden, I won. Um, and I had sworn that I was never going to go back into the office again until I was president because they had put police tape in front of my door in case you missed the message that I was never coming back to my friends inside the building. I came back. I Before I came back, I changed a whole bunch of things. So when people came back from the convention, the building looked different and felt different, you know, felt more at ease. It was an incredible experience. You know, I had all these ideas of what I was going to do. And I had all these people who didn't want me to do anything. 
right? And so this became the challenge of how do you make change when you, know, you have forces that are completely intending to make sure you never succeed. So the first thing I did is I changed the staff because I said that, you know, we couldn't grow stronger if our numbers grew smaller. So we had to organize. And that meant organizing people who did the same type of work. It was not about numbers. It was about the strength for our members, you know, and that meant organizing strategically by industry. So, you know, if you had five, eight, Healthcare Corporation of America hospitals, you didn't have much strength, but if you could organize the whole chain, you know, workers would do a lot better. So it was kind of a strategic vision of what to do, except the union's resources were completely misaligned to accomplish that. So, you know, I, in a way that disappointed many people I had worked with my whole life, you know, we gave 150 people new jobs. We laid off 25 staff members. We eliminated a whole bunch of activities that were important. We used to have 27 people in health and safety. There were two when we were done, you know, and you could go through communications and other things, but the organizing and the research, strategic research and all those functions, it was a pretty tough time in the headquarters. I was elected in April, you know, by the time the holidays came in December, I decided no one had ever sort of let every all the staff people come into the office. And, you know, I just opened the office up, put out food and drinks for anybody that came in. And, you know, the staff came in with black armbands, written a song, caroling, you know, about, you know, sort of Scrooge stirred. And on one hand, there was a, a certain amount of respect. They all knew me. There was nothing surprising about what I did. It's just people don't really believe you're going to do what you say you're going to do as a leader or a politician. And here I had done it, right? And they, unfortunately, you know, had had to have their lives uprooted. Most of them just had different jobs when it all got said and done. But, you know, many of them knew they were never going to be very successful in the jobs they had. So you know, it wasn't like they had lost their job, but they knew they weren't going to keep their job or enjoy their job. And it felt terrible on one hand. And on the other hand, you know, I always said... I had been a member of the union, right? I always wanted to see the, the union through the eyes of a member, not through the eyes of a leader. And the members didn't care about any of this, right? You know, this was, this was all inside baseball, right? And so on one hand, it was, it was a hard thing to do. On the other hand, it was absolutely 100% proven out the right thing to do. And then the same thing began to happen this time with the local leaders, because, and this probably was the most fundamentally important thing I did, was that I didn't let people who were bad actors, undemocratic, corrupt, get off the hook. You know, everybody used to like close their eyes and let it be. I decided, particularly after we had a big janitor strike in Pittsburgh, and it took forever to get the guy who was John Sweeney's successor in New York, Gus Bavona, who probably had mob connections, you know, to actually act to help the workers in Pittsburgh by pressuring his contractors in New York, you know, after eight weeks on strike. And it was like, this is crazy. And then across the river in New Jersey, his workers were the highest paid janitors in the world, but the same owners and the same janitorial companies were paying minimum wage. I used to say to him, you see, you look out the window, see, right over there in Hoboken, or Jersey City, 
those workers are making minimum wage and you're sitting here in this luxurious office bragging about how you have the highest wage janitors in the world and you do and you should be proud of it. But how about like crossing the river using the strength, you know, to raise up these workers and, you know, it just infuriated those kinds of things just infuriated me. And so, you know, eventually, I don't know, we probably trust the 12 of the biggest local unions in the country or got people to consider resigning. And, you know, that led to a whole new generation of younger leaders of women and people of color taking over these local unions, which really just allowed the unions change to happen without a central set of activities. Some of them failed, but most of them did pretty well. And they just generated a whole series of additional changes and activities. You know, that just amazed me. You know, they would come to the executive board and you'd ask people to go around. We always reported on organizing first because I wanted people to understand what I wanted to hear about, not I just got a great contract, you know, as much as important as that was. It was like, and, you know, by the time it was going on, like what people had either done to get ready to organize or the campaigns, you know, it was pretty remarkable. You know, it got to the point where we were growing probably 35 to 50,000 members a year, having nothing to do with what we did in the central office. You know, we had asked the locals to step up. We had, we had asked that they hire an organizing director. We had asked they put 20% of their resources into growth. You know, a lot of them after lots of struggles inside their own union with their own members and their own staff, because it also meant some adjustments did that. So we were like building this, you know, change machine, organizing machine. And then what we learned to do quite effectively was put, put politics and legal offensive strategies and corporate campaigns, you know, all to work in service of the growth, you know, so politicians who wanted our support do that. If we had home care or child care workers in your state that were independent contractors, the price of our endorsement and involvement of our member organizers, you know, was a commitment to make those changes. So, like the whole union became feeding a growth machine. And then when you grow 50 or 100,000 members a year, which is what we were doing, you know, then you add another five or $6 million of union resources. So it just becomes a, a virtual positive circle, you know, and then you attract better staff because organizers want to go where there's money and freedom and you can innovate and do big things. So, you know, we had a really incredible group of talented people who are both running locals and running organizing. It feels to me like you came to this with sort of a theory of leadership, and then I'm sure that developed in response to what worked and didn't work for you. Could you encapsulate what you think makes good leadership? It's not just in the union world, but these are very universal uh, tactics and strategies and actions. So, uh, I mean, to me, like having a, a bigger purpose than maintaining your leadership is kind of what made me you know, pretty doggedly determined to accomplish things despite all the things that could have gotten in the way. I used to do the orientation for new staff when the union was, you know, my first couple of years of the presidency when it was smaller. And I would always go in and I would say this to every new staff member. I would say, 
You're coming into an incredible institution. Members have built this throughout now nearly 100 years. But I want you to remember, when you sit in your very nice office and worry about who's in getting to go to what meeting, there is some janitor tonight who's going to stick his hand in a toilet, right, and clean that toilet. And at the end of the week, he's going to get a paycheck. And from that paycheck is a very small amount of money he's going to give to us so that we can change his life. And when you think it's about changing your life, we've lost our moral compass and it's time for you to go. So if you can't accept that that's why we're here, you shouldn't be here and leave now. Because to me, I could like see those home care workers, right? I'd been to their houses. I had been with lots of them in the organizing campaigns. I mean, these were incredibly brave people who, you know, in Los Angeles for 10 years, worked at minimum wage, but paid dues, you know, because they believed that they could have a better life by working together. And the union was the vehicle to do that. And it just seemed like, God, that's what I'm here to do. So that was, you know, clearly one thing. You know, two, as I always used to say, could you listen before you lead? You know, like we're always so smart, all of us, you know, because someone told us one day we were smart or all your sycophants in the case of union leaders tell you how great a speech that was, even when it's pretty terrible. To me, it's like listening, active listening, and particularly to everyone, you know, not just the people that are in your inner circle, you know, because you make all kinds of bad judgments and assumptions if you don't listen before you lead. And then clearly, you know, having a strategy and the resources. There's a difference between activity and movement, right? A lot of people think, you know, we're busy, we're active, we're on lots of Zoom calls, we're having lots of, you know, but there's no movement. Like when you look a year later, nothing really has changed. So trying to distinguish between activity and movement. And, you know, one of the things people, I don't know if they agreed with me or just made fun of me, but I used to say, you know, coordination sucks unless there's a purpose. Right. Like having meetings for the sake of meetings and everybody wants to coordinate and process is not progress. If process helps get progress, fabulous. I'm never going to tell you you have to include these three people in a meeting because they ran to me and said, well, we're in the research department and the organizers, you know, but you better have progress. What were you thinking and doing about the union's role in politics, in the battle between the two parties in tackling, assisting who would become president of the United States and so on along this time? So first of all, what people never realized about me before I became president, I hated politics. I didn't know a politician. I was an organizer. I still remember when I was in Harrisburg running my local, I met the president of the school board, thought, isn't that really important? I just met someone really important. So, you know, I was not interested in politics. I was hysterical that when I got elected, you know, the phone calls start, you know, Senator Kennedy, you know, people who never would have known who I was, probably assumed the other guy was going to win and been kissing, you know, his butt. So everybody be kissing my butt, calling me, acting like they're my best friend. And it didn't, none of it really. And so I really wasn't particularly interested in politics until I figured out how it could support growth. A lot of the teaching I got about politics was from a guy named Dennis Rivera, who was the president of SEIU 1199 in New York. He was from Puerto Rico, and he was probably the most 
incredible political strategist I've ever seen in the union. And the union raised so much money um, that, you know, from its member, like 50% of the members contributed to politics. And he really was my mentor and kind of like getting me to think about this. And so when I became president, I said at my first speech, you know, politics aren't about Democrats and Republicans or left or right. It's about what's right or wrong for our members. And I said, we're going to have no permanent friends or permanent enemies, just permanent interests and whoever serves our interests. And in order to make my point, I I now think how naive this was. I gave $10,000 to the Republican Party, $10,000 to the Green Party, $10,000 to the Libertarian, the Labor and the Democratic Party. And I said, like, I'm here, I'm new, like I have interests and issues, I would love to talk about them with all of you, you know, and so, you know, Jim Nicholson was the head of the Republican Party. They thought this was like really cool, you know, until they met with me and, you know, I would be talking about issues that they had no interest in dealing with. They weren't on your side. Exactly. They were not on my side. Not that the Democrats always were so great either, because it was during the Clinton years as well, at least on unions and, and other issues like welfare reform. So, I, you know, went through that cycle of let's just be non, not nonpartisan, but multipartisan, depending on who's going to stand up uh, for us. Uh, And then I realized that, you know, I needed to marry this to the organizing program. But what I really wanted to do was get our members to be the face of the union's political program. We had enough money eventually we could give everybody the maximum contribution. We created what was called the member political organizers one year. We called them the Heroes Program. And so like in the in the 96 election, when I was first elected, I said I set as a goal at the convention that we're going to have 10,000 members volunteer in the election, which we did. It, it just created a sense of common purpose amongst all the union and sort of made a point that members volunteering you know, it was really, but then by 2000, you know, we had 2000 and 2000. So we had 2000 full-time people off for at least three months to six months working on the presidential election. And by the time I left, I think in 2008, which was our biggest effort to the time, I don't know what's happened since then exactly. You know, we had a hundred thousand volunteers. We spent $60 million on electing Barack Obama. We endorsed him early. We had a very complicated process for endorsement. Everybody thought I was going to do the endorsement. and I thought everybody else was going to do it because I, I wasn't that smart trying to figure out who was going to be the next president of the United States. And, you know, we did Howard Dean in 2004, rather than John Kerry was our candidate, Obama in 2008. So, you know, we, we were not exactly mainstream. But, you know, there were people who spent a lot of time with us and you know, we use that time to try to work with them on the issues that were important to our members. Tell me about the change to win split and why and and what you think, like in retrospect, about that. By 2004, I think we felt at SEIU we had done everything we could as a single union to sort of change the trajectory of the labor movement. But we're very aware one union couldn't do this on their own. And so there had been a series of changes we made inside our union. We had 
required that people who bargain with the same employers in different parts of the country coordinate. If you were the powerful union in California, you know, with a certain company, the goal wasn't to see if you could be get even a better contract without appreciating that there were workers in Florida for the same company making a lot less money. And we tried to get people to think about the union as a whole um, and not competing, but, you know, cooperating. And we looked at the labor movement and said, this is crazy. There are 15 unions organizing and bargaining for hospital workers, and no one cooperates and coordinates. So in certain cities, you would have four unions, you know, bargaining a contract, some with the same hospitals. And everybody was trying to either outdo each other, you know, in some cases... SEIU had the nurses, so we had a little more power. Most cases, the nurses were in their own independent. You know, so the whole thing was just insane for workers, right? So we said, well, why doesn't the AFL try to bring some rationality to this? Tell certain unions you can't organize in these jurisdictions as long as the, the, the main union with the most members was actually actively involved trying to do the right thing. You couldn't undercut them or distract them or, you know, you should go do something differently. And when it comes to bargaining, we all should figure out a common way to approach common employers. And SEIU laid out a whole uh, 10-point program of how to reorganize the AFL, which, you know, in certain ways looked like SEIU. It's changed, but obviously because it was much broader jurisdictions, it had to be different. And then other unions got interested. We talked to other unions and we formed something that was pre-Change to Wind, which was kind of a little group, I can't even remember its name, of the Carpenters, Laborers, Unite Here, UFCW, you know, to try to work together on our own way to see if we could help each other, you know, which we did, you know, more mutual support. You know, I had a strike or you had an organizing drive. I sent staff, I sent money. And then we began a discussion with John Sweeney about these changes. And the private part of the discussions were always frustrating because John Sweeney would always agree. But he would just say, how am I going to get this done? Right. And we said, well, the first way you get it done is you decide you want to do it. I used to say to him, "Okay, so you're telling me that to make change, we have to get to a different place. But there's a wall in front of us. And rather than telling me how to get over the wall, you're saying, and the wall has lots of bricks and it's reinforced with steel and it's very high. And I say, yeah, I know all those things, right? We got to get to the other side of the wall, right? Or else workers aren't going to do well in this country. And that was kind of where John Sweeney's incredible kind of foresight ran into political confrontation. He didn't want to, to take the sledgehammer like, you know, in, in East Berlin and be the first one to hit the wall to tear it down. You know, he wanted other people to tear down the wall and not get himself in the middle of the dispute. So, you know, and other people said it was because I wanted to be president of the AFL-CIO, which would have been the, the worst job I could have imagined. And I certainly had no temperament, you know, for that. So, you know, it became this, this discussion the convention came, a group of unions put forward a set of proposals of how to kind of better organize the labor movement and make it more focused on members succeeding. The other side rejected it. And 
never thought, I think, that we were going to leave, and we left. Now, two things happened after we left, you know, that were the fatal flaws of change to win. One was, in order to get everyone to leave with us, we made certain compromises on how we were going to enforce our theory of the case, right? Bargaining together, organizing together. And so we we softened, if not eliminated, the accountability measures because we, in the end, no one wanted to go on their own, which probably would have been a better idea for SEIU just to go on its own, make alliances with community organizations and immigrant rights, you know, spend our money that we were spending on the union, building up an infrastructure of advocates. But instead, and a lot because of our local unions, you know, like the state feds, state AFL-CIOs or local AFL-CIOs, and they were much better in many cases in terms of what people needed to do. So we softened our stance. We, I and others wanted to do one campaign, which was Walmart, like that would be who changed to win. Other unions didn't want to spend their money on that and wanted the money that really was SEIU transferring dollars from a, into a center pool, then into the Teamsters to do a, a warehouse campaign or UFCW to do other campaigns or transferring our staff or research capabilities. And some other unions do, not just us, but it was, it turned out more like an international union transferring resources for campaigns than it was a movement to do something big. And so we failed. You know, that's all I can say. It was an effort to try to, you know, fight our way into the future. It did generate enough interest to finally do labor law reform because the AFL prior to, I guess it was 2008, always said, well, we can't do labor law reform because it'll only get worse. It was kind of this loser mentality, like don't do it because it'll get worse. But, you know, because change to win was so adamant about it, it sort of drove the whole labor movement to what's now become the PRO Act. There were things that positive. I could make that into, oh, it was really great. It was just, we didn't have the courage to hold each other accountable to a series of ideas. And eventually, therefore, you know, it didn't become what it needed to be. And we didn't have the signature campaign, like a steelworkers organizing campaign around Walmart, the largest employer in the world at the time, you know, that would have given it a signature sense of, of mission you know, that I think would have drawn a lot more people towards us as a movement and not just another labor federation doing something a little bit different. During this time, you're really becoming a very public leader on television a lot and, and visible. You mentioned earlier that like some labor leaders have stayed too long, I think, with respect to Lane Kirkland, but you kind of left on the top of your game. What was the calculus there, really. So when I was elected, I said to the people closest to me, you know, if I can't in 15 years change this union movement, set the union in a certain direction, bring in people, you know, who had the skills, you know, and be the last white male president of a union that was becoming more women and people of color, then something was wrong. And I sort of said to everybody, okay, you know, in 15 years, if I'm still here, make me tell you why and prove to you why. Don't be easy on me. By 2010, which was 14 years, we had elected a 
president, first African-American president in history. We had passed healthcare reform a lot with SEIU's, you know, it's a tremendous amount of work that we put into that for five years beforehand. We had a Democratic Congress and Senate. And SEIU, you know, had had one big internal brouhaha, and that was pretty much over by 2010 with one of our West Coast locals. And so it seemed like, okay, why am I here? Like, what's my purpose? What's my unique value? And what would be staying one year, two years, three years? And I had this sense, I think I think I probably wrote about it in my book, like the world was changing, like technology and economies and globalization and things I really didn't understand was happening faster. And it just confused me. Like, it just didn't seem like we could just keep organizing 100,000 people. The idea of change to win didn't work. But more importantly, it seemed like the economy was something was happening. And I just didn't feel like I was the visionary leader anymore who had the clear path forward. And, you know, I was going to leave at some point, right? So why not now? And I had lost a daughter in 2002, you know, and that had completely, you know, messed me up. Still does. I'd gotten divorced, didn't have much of, you know, I'd been working, you know, I was exhausted, you know, the union was my life, and it just seemed like I needed a little bit think about myself, but more importantly, I couldn't think about why my value was so uniquely different than other people who were inside the union. And by now, the locals had lots of good leaders. I probably was a little bit wrong about that, too, but um, that was kind of my theory. It was a perfect time, Healthcare, Obama, Democrats in the in the Congress, lots of Democratic governors in the states. People were safe. Now we needed to figure out a new mission and needed someone who was going to stay with it a lot longer. When you leave power at uh, almost any level, it's hard to anticipate some of the changes, I think. Some of the people who you thought were friends may only be friends of the title or, you know, people treat you differently. Um, it's just inevitable. And I, I think it takes almost anybody, regardless of ego, some adaptation to a new reality. Uh, how did you deal with that change? What kind of things did you involve yourself in? And how was that transition for you? The one good thing was I had no illusion, you know, that my successor was going to call on me and give me a mission. I didn't ask for it. I didn't want it. Um, and I'd watched every other union president who thought that was going to be true, be incredibly disappointed. Now, everybody makes it personal. It's kind of a structural thing. When you're gone, you're gone is what I used to, I still say to people who, you know, are leaving a job. I don't care if you're at, you know, a foundation or an advocacy. When you're gone, you're gone, right? And if you want to roll, structure it before you leave, you know. But it's not, you know, it, it might be a way to make money. It might be a way to do a project you want to do, but it's different, right? I didn't quite realize until I left, like how important people thought I was. I knew I was doing something very special and I was pretty uniquely privileged to sort of represent all these workers and fight with them. In retrospect, it was, I was a bigger deal than I understood. I was a deal, a public figure, all those things at the time. And so, you know, it's a crash, you know, it's not like, oh, you know, it's just a little bit different. It's like you wake up the next morning 
You don't have assistants. You don't have people doing your scheduling. Your income has changed. There's lots of things that are different. But I almost felt like the burden lift off my... I mean, I took this job so seriously, and it meant so much that I did everything I could to help the people I was trying to organize or represent that I kind of didn't even understand. Like I was carrying around, you know, incredible weight of responsibility with me. So that felt great. What to do with my time? I had no idea. I was lucky that someone who had been one of my enemies in organizing one time, uh, Ronald Perlman, who owned a security company and I had a huge fight with him. And actually, you know, he would say, was the first person that almost got close to outsmarting him. No one's ever outsmarted him, but he would say, I got pretty close. And the billionaire, the billionaire Revlon. Yeah. Oddly, when I left, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I, I, Ronald, I don't really know what I'm going to do. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about a bunch of different things. You know, um, I was interested in the environmental movement. I just got my thoughts around that. So, well, why don't you be a fellow at Georgetown? You know, I, I, I know someone at Georgetown, you know, we'll make you a fellow. So it's, so it's great. Like, I don't know what a fellow was, but it seemed like, okay, I'll, I don't know. I'll write something. I'll do something. And so I became a fellow at Georgetown. And, you know, while I was there, I started to think more seriously about the future. And then Ronald said, I'm giving a lot of money to Columbia University. And he was incredibly generous to Columbia gave between 150 and 200 million dollars and you know i was kind of a little add-on to the the gift in a sense that he, he funded a fellowship for me um, for a period of time and it was there because they didn't know exactly what to do with me because glenn hubbard who was george bush's economic advisor was the dean of the business school and i was part in the business and part in the law school so they gave me this project of go out and figure out what we could do. We have a funded chair for a professor, but we want to know what subject like, and we think it should be somewhere in the benefits, you know, employment law. So like, why don't you go out and, which was just, you know, an invitation to me to go find anybody I thought was interested and talk to them. You know, I went Bob Reich. I talked to, I think you read the book, you know, I talked to people at Intel. I talked to CEOs. I talked to advocates, you know, just about what was going on in life. I thought it was fascinating to see you convey the learning that was taking place, right? Because you you know a lot when you're when you're running an organization, but there were lots of other parts of the world going on at a very fast pace. It was shocking. It was, yeah, yeah. All those internet companies and coming up to speed on lots of different areas of the economy and very interesting to me. You know, it matched up with my listen before you leave concept, right? It's like... I got to figure this out, you know, I better start asking people because if I knew the answers, I'd do it. And so, you know, it just led me to this moment where I thought the answer was guaranteed jobs. When I was about to write my final chapter about given all this, we had guaranteed jobs. And my research assistant, um, who's a really smart and capable guy, has gone on to do great things, you know, said to me, he, he tells me the story. He talked to his wife all night long. He wanted to talk to me about universal basic income. And he said, I'm going to go tell some labor leader work isn't important. They should really just give people money. And he wrote, which turned out to be something I gave to lots of people, like a, a, a 10-page memo and then five pages of syllabus of things to read. 
and he summarized it all. Yeah, yeah, a little manifesto on why UB, what UBI was and its history and whatever. And it was like, I said, that's that's pretty interesting. I said, I never really kind of heard about it, you know. And so let me think about it. And, you know, the more I thought about it, it just became a very attractive option that I hadn't really thought about. And so, you know, it became the conclusion of my book rather than my preconceived conclusion of, therefore, we have to guarantee jobs for free. The guaranteed jobs is sort of Roosevelt Truman sort of thinking and something that, I don't know, the Democrats have never been able to get close to. The economy is complicated. And- yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated problem. You know, if you, I lived through CETA, which was a job program in, the, I guess, the 70s. And, you know, the unions were fighting it because they were saying they were taking people's jobs. The people in it were feeling like they weren't paid appropriate wages and benefits. And this was all sort of in a quasi-public sector setting. Then, you know, how did you do this? So it just seemed incredibly complicated. And, you know, government's not very good at doing complicated things, more or less when Republicans are trying to do by now, you would think everybody have to be drug tested and not have more than two children or something and not be an immigrant. And so it just seemed like a great theory. And, you know, everybody talks about the WPA. It didn't last forever. It was a stimulus. And so I understand guaranteed jobs when, as we did a lot now, subsidizing jobs or, you know, the airlines we subsidized during COVID. But the idea of permanently creating job just seemed like we were going to end up with an underclass of wage slaves, you know, dictated by Republican treaties and exploited by business. Some time ago on the podcast, I had on Natalie Foster, who is in that UBI movement. And I know you're associated with the Economic Security Project and also Jim Pugh. I don't know if you know him, but uh, also in that space. The book came out five years ago. A lot has changed and a lot has not changed. Tell me about like how you see the prospects and the politics for enacting UBI. When the book first came out, my friends as well as my enemies thought I was nuts. You know, this was like such a odd idea. Not many people for it. And, you know, when you threw in... Um, Charles, whatever is the, my economist, my Murray. Charles Murray into the mix, along with Richard Nixon, you know, you sort of got a combustible problem, you know, of people not believing. A lot of cross-cutting ideological yeah, right. stuff. You know, and then eventually Black Lives Matter adopted it as a form of reparations. And so it sort of got rebalanced a little bit, but it was really out there as an idea. I couldn't find anybody in the labor movement you know, who would pay any attention to it. I think what's now happened is, one, these are all good things. Cash as an answer to social problems is now so much better established than I could have ever imagined because of COVID and now the child tax credit, you know, that, you know, and that's a building block. We don't need another program. We need to give people money to solve their problems because many of their problems particularly poverty is caused by a lack of money, not a lack of another government program. So I think we've established cash as an answer. The amount of experimentation going on by mayors and cities, like I just got a list recently. I mean, it's phenomenal for homelessness, for foster parents, 
for poor people, you know, it's just being tried out as a solution. And I think, you know, we're going to at least establish to anybody who cares about knowing that people aren't spending all their money on drugs, gambling, prostitution, whatever the worst case scenario is. If you think you give people money, you accentuate the worst tendencies. I think we're going to at least have a real large body of American knowledge that you may not agree with them how the money is, but don't worry about it. it's being people are going to stop working and go to sleep. Uh, I think that's been good. I don't think we've gotten to a place. Maybe we'll never get to a place. I think we will. Where technological change reduces so many jobs that the need for a, a floor, you know, an income floor, becomes clear. I think it will. So I think all of this. We've done through the stimulus, job tax credit, and experimentation. Sets a course to be adopted when we hit that moment. You know, and I do think, you know, Democrats are, you know, beginning to see the advantage of giving people cash. And the question will be, are they willing to cash out existing programs as well as adding cash into the pot? So you could cash out food stamps. You know, you could cash out a lot of things that people get. And just add it into a child tax credit. You can cash out EITC. You could, you know, there's a lot of things you could do. And so, I think we're getting to the point of can we get to an income floor? It's somewhat what we're seeing in reconciliation is we can get a lot of things done if we don't do it for as long or as high of amount to start. We can still get all of our programs done. I think there's going to be a question of could we establish an income floor for everyone? If we got rid of certain programs and added other revenue, new revenue into it. And I'd say, you know, the two last issues that we haven't conquered is, you know, why is Bill Gates getting a check? You know, as much as you can say to people, well, if you go read the Pandora Papers, right, and figure out how much money Bill Gates is getting in tax breaks, do not worry about giving him $12,000. Like worry about taking back $50 million. You're on the wrong end of the telescope here. Give him the, the $12,000 and take his $50 million or $100 million that he should be paying in taxes. But, you know, we haven't gotten to that and we haven't gotten past the work. You know, work is, is uh, reverential, you know, to good Christian values kind of ideas. So you know, I think there's some things to overcome, but clearly... You know, it's moving in a direction where cash, you know, is becoming much more of a thoughtful, bipartisan answer to many problems. One of the giant, let's call it a wrinkle that's happened since you wrote the book was Trump, Trumpism, that administration and the ongoing threat, I, I would put it, of his resurrection. How do you see what changes he and the people who follow him have wrought in our politics. How do you see that? Pretty uh, catastrophically. And it's not just him, but let's just say he's the, you know, the undermining of facts to mean anything. It's kind of like everybody who didn't understand what Goebbels did for Hitler kind of thing, right? But the idea of making things true that are not true or questioning things you know, that are true, just kind of undermines everything, you know, and Facebook and, the, you know, as we learned in the hearings yesterday, all of this is part of it, but Trump took it to the, you know, to the absolute 
extreme. So that's frightening. Looking at what people believe, looking at what's happened with the vaccine, you know, is just frightening. And, you know, the idea that we could have our own dictator in this country and that people would accept it. Everybody said, well, what was everybody doing when not just Hitler, but some dictator takes over a country and they're saying, you know, how did it's people happening, want that? It's happening in, in the Polands and the Hungary. Hungary's exactly and, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, how did that ever happen? And it's like, well, this is how it happens, right? In case, you know, people do business leaders acquiesce and people that aren't being rounded up, you know, kind of close their eyes when we throw the immigrants out of the country and lock them up in jails. So to me, it's it's really frightening and having no real particular platform any more than any citizen does now. You know, it's just a dawning realization that, you know, I feel incredible responsibility with limited opportunity because it takes organizations and organizing and resources here, you know, to fight back. But it's it's something I was not hoping to have to deal with in my aging years of worrying about fundamental issues of freedom and democracy as opposed to your normal issues of greed and inequality. Yeah. It's, it's sort of Trump's, so to speak, all of the, all of normal politics. If you worry that the system is going to get completely subverted. When I was thinking about your book and this interview, I thought about Trump's run and how he used immigration and trade real issues to distinguish himself from the Republican field and uh, just his different take on that. He found political opportunity through them. Not, it wasn't just like running on racism and things like that. There were some things that he used and some of that intersects awkwardly with the union movement. I was thinking if I were him, I might run on UBI this time. If I was going to pick another like seam something unexploited that sounded good and it might even be a direction that this could come in and how complicated would that be to deal with politically for the democratic side i guess that's the longest of long shots but how would you think no, about I, mean, like, I, I think you know I, listen i don't think this is a guy who doesn't worry about spending money or debt no he, he would be like the one republican in a certain way who could bring that into the system wouldn't be out of character. Yeah. And I think if he could find a way to do it that made it like the opposite, it's like reparations for white people, right? Like he could have an audience, right? Um, I don't know how he does it, but if anybody could figure out how to do it, he's probably the one that could twist this around to see, right, why UBI is really an, an American free. Andrew Yang called it the freedom dividend. He could probably call it the freedom dividend. It's only available to people under certain, you know, conditions. The deserving people. The deserving people. So, yeah, I mean, I think anything's possible. Democrats have become a party of social liberalism, you know, and until recently, Wall Street business, you know, so you have, you know, a very, you know, good positions on choice or LGBTQ rights or voting or justice issues, but their economic policies are really bad for workers when they were in government. Biden has, I think, been attempting to do something very different. And, but so uh, there's always been an audience, you know, on trade. Immigration to me is about 
besides race, it's about jobs, right? About people, someone's taking your job. Trade is certainly about someone taking your job. And the truth is we let a lot of people who had very good jobs in the Midwest and other parts of the country, we let them down. You know, we talked about just transition and there was no transition. You know, there was the Trade Assistance Adjustment Assistance Act. You know, we're going to send you to school. It was like someone said to me, you know, trying to teach a mine worker to be a coder is like trying to teach the right tackle to be the quarterback. You know, it's a great theory, but at 360 pounds, the right tackle is not, not going to be quite the quarterback you need. Not agile enough. Yeah. And so, you know, this idea of, you know, everybody should go to community college and training is the biggest liberal bogus promise that we've ever made to people. Because even the people that went to college have done really badly in the last 20 years. They may have done better than the people who didn't, but the college debt and college premiums are, you know, decreased. People are making less than college graduates, you know, a decade ago. And so, you know, Democrats have sold people, you know, a lot of theory, you know, of retraining in community college, all good things. They just don't bring about the economic change they're being promoted to accomplish. I mean, a lot of your book is about our economic future and our economic future. Well, we don't know what it's going to be, but we know it's going to be way different with technology and many other things. That kind of change that produces the kind of dislocation is dangerous if you don't get ahead of it. And it's dangerous politically as much as anything else. Besides UBI, what other things would you do to prepare us? I always say the one job we need more of is philosophers, because I don't think we've been able in the last hundred years to picture a world where like work wasn't a major identity and a major usage of time. And, you know, even people like me who, you know, have a nice union pension, you know, what to do with my time, you know, is always just a consideration, which is a luxury that most people don't have. And so I don't think we have a conceptual nature and this is a little ethereal and, but of like what life's going to be like when you have a robot and where AI anticipates. And I you know, read a lot about robotics and AI. And, you know, the question is when, not if, you know, all these things are going to happen. And like driverless cars, you know, they, they were sort of hyped early, but it's not like they're not going to happen. You know, I mean, there's going to come a point in time. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the same thing's true with robots in your home. You know, I know, com- you know, I know companies that are involved with that and they've made a lot of advances and, you know, 10 years from now, they'll be there, you know. And so I just think we're completely unprepared psychologically. I think economically might be a little easier because it's just cash. It's money. And, you know, in theory, which, again, I'm not an economist, so I don't quite understand this. You know, we're going to reduce the cost of goods so dramatically. You know, it's like the old story of whatever, the microwave that costs $500 and now you can get it, or the TV, color TV that was 1000 and now you get it for 200 But, you know, when you don't need people making things, you don't need people driving taxis, things should get cheaper. I'm not sure capitalism will make them cheaper. It doesn't seem like the invisible hand will take care of all the problems. No, I agree. You'll need government. And, the, you know, and to me, the easiest thing would just be get people money because then you don't have to disrupt everybody's profit situation. You just have to give them money to keep the profit going and how you build that cycle. I don't know. But I think economically, 
you know, besides UBI, you know, it just gets to the same issues of therefore them not charging for college and not charging for other things that people do in their life. So healthcare, you know, there are lots of big costs that people have. Other countries have eliminated it as a, you know, as a cost. I think there's a, a huge problem on what do people do? What's meaning? What's life? What's What did Maslow's need hierarchy really mean when it said, if food, clothing, housing, in theory, you know, isn't the big struggle of life, like self-actualization, what, yeah, what is self-actualization? And it's not going to be the same for for everyone. And I think it's going to be traumatic, like psychologically traumatic, as we've seen with people who don't work. Well, it's really been an honor to talk to you. Is there a question I haven't asked that I should have? No, I, I like appreciate you stimulating, you know, like my walk through memory lane and the different things I've done. Now, I just would say, you know, a I've had more privilege in terms of the work that I've been able to do and the people I've been able to work with than anybody probably can imagine. Um, and two is, you know, the respect I have for like low wage workers and immigrant workers, I think is just one of the most undervalued appreciations and that people's love for the union when they have so little, you know, and are willing to fight, you know, for more. And I still remember people worried about where their office was and was, did they get a window, you know, and other people are thinking about like, how do I get an apartment that I don't have all my family in one bedroom or two. It's very easy to lose perspective as you move up in abstraction and wealth and privilege. So for me, you know, trying to maintain that same focus I had when I was in the union about the janitor, you know, about the goodness of so many people that live in this country and work hard and, and having appreciation and gratitude, you know, for what I have and, you know, trying to do whatever I can while I'm still around, you know, to honor them and fight for them. That's a pretty good place to be. Thanks much. Anything else you want to say? No, you're a great interviewer, by the way. You have a good, nice, soft, calm, thoughtful demeanor. Very good. (laughs) Appreciate that. (laughs) That was Andy Stern. Andy is at economicsecurityproject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.